0: second samuel is where we are looking tonight second samuel 12 page 249 in your pew bibles So last week we had part one of the David and Bathsheba story. We heard of what David did. We heard of his sin, of his lust, of his arrangement for the murder of Uriah. We heard that he thought he was going to get away with it until Nathan came into his midst and told him that he was the man, that God knew his sin. And Nathan told him that his son would die. And we pick up the story at verse 15 of chapter 12. The Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became very ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child. David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his house stood beside him, urging him to rise from the ground, but he would not. Nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to us. How then can we tell him the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But When David saw that his servants were whispering together, he perceived that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David rose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while it was alive, but when the child died, you rose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me, and the child may live. But now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And David consoled his wife Bathsheba and went to her and lay with her. And she bore a son, and he named him Solomon. The Lord loved him and sent a message by the prophet Nathan. So David named him Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord, because of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Why did David pray? Why go through all this? The last word that he had received from Nathan was that this child would die. That's what he was told. Was it being stubborn? Was he being arrogant? Or was he acting like somebody who knew this God? David knew the story of Abraham. He knew how Abraham had bargained with God for the lives of people in Sodom and Gomorrah. David knew the story of Moses. He knew not only how Moses had bargained with God when God asked him to go and get his people out of Egypt, but he also knew how Moses had bargained with God when God was so angry at the Israelites that he threatened to wipe them out and start all over again with Moses. Moses bargained with God, spoke back to God, had God relent. David knows Abraham and David knows Moses and David knows his own story. David knows about the times in the wilderness when he was desperate, when he was lost, when he didn't know where his next meal was coming from and God showed up. David can tell story after story after story in his own life when he was on the ropes, when it looked like everything was done when there was no hope at all, and he pleaded to God to come and save him, and God did. And so here he is, on the ground, weeping before God, willing before God, eyes puffy, head aching from the weeping, body weak from the fast. And we can imagine as words may have been something like, it was my fault. I'm the one who did it. I'm the one who sinned. Don't don't take this baby because of what I did. Don't hurt Bathsheba because of what I did. Please, God, please, please give me back my son. Please, God, please, save his life. We can imagine him crying until his voice was hoarse. We can imagine times when he was pouring himself out and then times when he was just lying flat on the ground, exhausted. And the people who lived with him in the house didn't know what to do. He wouldn't eat, he wouldn't get up. So when the word comes that the child is dead, they... They're scared. But David is not so far gone in his wailing that he doesn't notice the conversation on the sidelines. Is he dead? Yeah. And these servants who have watched David with concern, with worry, with anxiety... Now watch with amazement as he picks himself up off the ground. And he slowly stumbles into the other room. And they can hear him pour the water in the wash basin. And they can hear him wash his face. They hear him call for a fresh robe. He comes out. He's anointed himself with fresh oil. He's clean. And then they walk with him as he goes To worship. He goes to worship. And they say. We. We don't get this. Well the child was alive. You were weeping. And now that the child is dead. you. And he says well. You know. While the child was alive. I thought God might be gracious. And. Now that he's gone, there's nothing more to do. David has heard God say, no. Seven days before the face of God, seven days without eating, seven days pouring himself out, crying his eyes out, seven days of this, and the answer he gets back from God is no. And when David hears the answer, he stands up, he cleans up, and he goes to worship. God says no, and David goes to worship. You've spent three semesters getting ready to go to Spain. You're excited about it. All of your courses are lined up to do it. When the time comes, you don't get accepted. God says, no, do you worship? You plead and plead with God to save your parents' marriage. For months, Years, you've heard them fighting. You want them to go to counseling. You've seen them go to counseling. You pray for the marriage to be restored. It isn't. God says no. Do you worship? You pray and pray for your faith to be strengthened. You're tired of being buffeted about by whatever comes across you're tired of the struggle. You're tired of the doubt. But it seems that the more you pray, the more you doubt. God seems absent. Do you worship? You thought this was the one. You would poured months into this relationship. It's a godly person. A person who loves Jesus. You had so much in common. And the relationship is over, God said, no, this is not your future. Do you worship? In my experience, in my own life, when God says no, my first impulse is not worship. My first impulse sounds a lot more like, are you kidding me? This was a godly thing. This would have advanced your kingdom. How can you say no to this? Come on. And sometimes it's rage that bubbles up. How can you say no? How can you do this? I don't understand you. I don't get this. I pour my life out for you. I do everything for you. And when it comes to this little thing that I want, you say no. When God says no, our normal response is usually somewhere between being really angry to feeling betrayed to being really hurt to saying, I'm not talking to you for a while. When God says no, it's usually not our impulse to worship. It's usually our impulse to lament. David understood lament. 150 psalms in the Psalter, over 70 of them are psalms of lament, many of which were written by David. And so many of them begin just as we want them to begin. What are you doing? Where are you? How long are you going to leave me like this? My bones are out of joint. I flood my bed with tears. I can't sleep. I can't eat. I'm lost. I'm betrayed. I'm suffering. We say, yeah. But then consistently, again and again and again, in the Psalms of Lament, there's this turn. I don't know what you're doing. I'm so lost. I can't believe you said no. I can't believe you're not showing up. I can't believe I can't see you. Yet, I will praise you. Yet, I will trust you. Yet, I will say that you are my God. David spent years in the wilderness suffering, years in the wilderness being chased by Saul, years in the wilderness fighting for his life. Years in the wilderness, unsure of what was going to happen next. And this is when he wrote those psalms. Those psalms of uncertainty and loss and betrayal and suffering. And this is where he learned to trust. Because again and again and again in his life, he saw that when he was on the ropes, God saved him. But all of those times... He had no idea that they were preparing him for this moment. The worst suffering of his life. When his newborn son, a babe in arms, born fresh and pink and crying with life, slowly fades. And it's his fault. It's his sin that is killing his son. So, all of his time in the wilderness, of going through a season of suffering and loss and uncertainty, all of it was preparing for this moment when God said, no. And David was able to get up off the floor and move from wailing to worship. And he was able to do that because of Abraham And because of Moses and because of his own life where he had seen the faithfulness of God to his people from generation to generation to generation and he had to get up off that floor and believe that if God had done it before, God could do it again. He had to get up off that floor and go And worship. Because it was in worship that he was reminded that there was a God and it wasn't him. It was in worship he was reminded that there was a king and it wasn't him. It was in worship that he was reminded that God is a faithful God. And that even in times of lament, even in times of loss, even in times of suffering, David knew cognitively, even through his broken heart, he knew that this God could be trusted even as he buried his son. Now don't go away thinking that his life was all fine after this. Don't think that David was unchanged. Because in the first chapters of Samuel, we see David as heroic. He is mighty. He is anointed. He's the giant killer. He's the one who eats of the feast of Abigail. He's the one who sees beauty. He's the one who dances before the ark of the Lord. He is the one. He is the king. And then there is this event in his life where his sin leads to the death of this son and trauma and tragedy in his family. And from here on out, David is vulnerable and he is timid. Suffering changes us. Suffering changes us. Gerald Sitzer is an author and a teacher who, several years ago, in one car accident, lost his wife, his mother, and one of his daughters. And in the years after that, he wrote a book called A Grace Disguised, which is one of the best books on suffering and loss that you're ever going to read. And he says, when you go through a period of traumatic loss, when you go through a time of catastrophe, he said, you don't recover. He said, it's the difference between breaking your leg and having an amputation. When you break your leg, you can recover. He said, when you have an amputation, it's gone. And what you do then is try to absorb this suffering into the rest of your life. It's woven like a cord through the fabric of the rest of your life. You don't get over it, you don't recover. It changes you. Some of you know this. Some of you have buried parents, some of you have buried siblings. Some of you have watched a parent struggle with an addiction. Some of you have suffered from abuse. Some of you have suffered from assault. And you know that your life breaks into these two halves. And you know that suffering changes you. And it changed David. But it did not change David's God. In David's mind, redemption looked like this. It looked like that little baby turning pink again. It looked like that little baby opening his eyes again. It looked like that little baby crying out again in life. That's what it looked like. And God said, no. But God wasn't done. Because God came into the life of David and Bathsheba. This couple who had come together originally out of lust, out of a summer night's fling. This couple who had come together and never should have been together. God comes into the life of this couple. And they conceive again. And they have a child again. They have a son again. And they name him Solomon. Which is a name that means peace. It comes from the same word as shalom. Shlomo. Is the modern Israeli version of Solomon. They name their baby boy Peace because they sure want some. And then into this narrative comes Nathan the prophet again, who the last time he was in the picture had pretty harsh news. But this time he comes into the picture and he tells them, This child, God is crazy about this child. God is crazy in love with this kid. In fact, you should name him God is crazy in love with this kid. (laughs) And so they do. They name him Jedidiah, the peacemaker, the one who is beloved by God. Because God's idea of redemption was much larger than David's idea of redemption. Justice had to be done. But mercy and grace flowed too. Because little baby Solomon grows up as his brothers squabble and fight above him. Little baby Solomon, the youngest son of David, the last son he'll ever have, the youngest son of the youngest son, Solomon grows up to become king. And God loves this kid so much that he gives him wisdom and he gives him wealth and he allows him to expand the territories of the kingdom. And he is a reign of peace and prosperity. That's unlike anyone before or since. But God's vision of redemption didn't end with Solomon. And it didn't end when his sons fought and the kingdom split. And it didn't end when those kingdoms went off into exile. And it didn't end when they came drifting back from exile. God's plan for redemption was much bigger than David ever could have imagined. Because his plan for redemption meant that Solomon would someday have a kid who had a kid who had a kid who had a kid who had a a daughter named Mary. And she would give birth to a son and name him Yeshua, Savior. God's plan for redemption is much bigger than we can ask or imagine. The only way we move from wailing to worship when God says no, is because of that baby Jesus. The only way you survive when God says no, is because of Jesus. The only way you pick yourself up off the floor And force yourself to take a shower and have something to eat. The only way you drag yourself into worship when it seems that God keeps saying no again and again and again, the only way you are in this space tonight is because of Jesus. Because it's Jesus who reminds us that our life and our plan is so small. And God's life for us and God's plan for us is so large. It's Jesus who reminds us look back to Abraham, look to Moses, look to David, look to Solomon. Remember that you are part of a large family of the people of God. And we don't know sometimes why God says no to individual people. We don't know. But what we do know is what we see throughout history, and that is God's story is not finished yet. And God's story in your life isn't finished yet. God has some redemption going on because that's what God is about. Jesus Christ comes into the world and he grows up into a man. And that man gathers people around him. Who love him and he has a feast with them and he tells them that he's going to die and he tells them that he's going to rise again and the only way we drag ourselves into worship when God says no is because we know at this table that God is all about bringing life out of death God is all about raising up things that we thought were gone forever. God is all about fresh starts. God is all about faithfulness. So friends, we gather at this table tonight because Jesus our Lord is here. Jesus our Lord is here and he loves you. And Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. Jesus knows what it's like to be on the floor before God. Jesus knows what it's like to have God say no. Jesus knows what it's like to have God say yes. And in Christ, we are told that every promise of God is yes. And amen. Will you pray with me?